Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 40, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 56. Luke eight forty to 56. God's Word reads, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the, mother, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This past week, a question hung in my mind. Can I trust Jesus? As many of you know, my wife has had some health things going on lately. For the past two years, she's had this incurable cerebral spinal fluid leak, which is a mouthful. But as far as I can tell, I'm I'm not a doctor. I could mess it up. There's doctors here. As far as I know, it means that she has a tear in the dura that houses her spinal fluid. And it leaks out. And when that fluid leaks out, it stresses and strains her brain and she gets these crazy headaches and all of these other symptoms that just put her out of commission for chunks of time. And then in addition to it, we also found out she has Lyme disease. And uh, I'm so mindful that things could be a million times worse. Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. I, I see how the Lord has been merciful to us in all of this. But this past week, I'm looking at my wife laying in our bed, just feeling terrible. And I became acutely aware of how much I need Jesus. It was so obvious to me that I need Him for everything, that I'm so weak, that I'm so powerless. And right then at that moment, that question floats to the surface of my mind, but can I trust Him with this? Can I trust Jesus? Will He and can He actually help us? Can I trust Jesus? You ever ask that question? Even even just in the form of a doubtful heart or some prayer offered up to the Lord that you never think He's ever going to answer in the first place, have I can I trust Jesus? You ever ask that even in your own mind? 
I suspect it's a question we've all asked in one shape, way, shape, or form. Whether the question's amplified, thumping away loudly in your mind even this morning, or whether it's just a quiet whisper in the background. Maybe you're sitting here today and things are going on in your heart. Things are happening in the circumstances around you that are causing you to ask the question, can I trust Jesus? It is so important that we learn to trust Jesus. God's Word tells us that if we're going to follow Christ, we need to learn to trust Him. It is vitally important that when that question chimes in our minds, we answer with a, with a confident, yes, Lord, I trust You. I, I trust You. I know that I can and I do. I trust You, Lord Jesus. Well, we've been moving through Luke's Gospel for a little while now, and today we land in chapter 8, where our text gives us the confidence to answer that question, can I trust Jesus? From chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 56, Luke records four miracles. Two of them we looked at last week. Two of them we're going to look at this week. Last week's miracles, the calming of the sea and the the, the cleansing of the demoniac displayed his power over his authority over the natural world, the seas and the winds, as well as the supernatural, the demons. And the two miracles we're going to look at today, the healing of this little girl, the resurrection of, or the healing of this woman, the resurrection of this little girl are going to show that Jesus also has power and authority over us, over health, life, sickness, and death. And so as we consider the rest of chapter 8 this morning, we're going to see those four miracles dovetail together to give us this full picture of Jesus' power and His authority, helping us to affirmatively answer that question, can I trust Jesus? So as we seek to answer the question, as we start thinking through it, the text immediately makes it clear that you can trust Jesus because His power is sufficient. You can trust Jesus, because His power is sufficient. These miraculous displays of power are set in Galilee. Jesus' Galilean ministry is underway. Verse 40 sets the scene for us. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And a lot has already taken place in uh, chapter 8 alone, which explains the presence of this expectant crowd and and tells us why Jesus is once again returning to Galilee. In chapter uh, 8, verse 1, Jesus is moving through all these Galilean towns and cities, proclaiming the good news of His kingdom. By by, by verse 4, this this group of people are gathering together from all these different places around Galilee, and, and they're gathering into this crowd to listen to Jesus teach. By verse 19, that crowd is so dense, his own mother and brothers cannot get through to him. And all of this is happening on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. This is an area of the region that is predominantly settled by Jews. Verse 22, he gets in a boat. They cross the sea. This is where the calming of the storm happens. They get to the eastern side. This is where he heals this man of the demons. He casts the demons out. They get in their boat. They go back. And now they've landed, verse 40, back on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So as Jesus has traveled through these Galilean towns and villages, he's gained notoriety. And when he gets over here on the western side, the the crowd is buzzing with anticipation, this eagerness to see Jesus. And as soon as Jesus steps foot off that boat, his ministry to that crowd picks right back up. He returns, 
The crowd comes in on him. Here comes Jairus falling at his feet. The crowd presses in. Here comes the bleeding woman. So, so, so his ministry picks right back up, but we also see that these two miracles are intertwined. And they're not just intertwined, they're, they're escalating. They escalate from uh, healing a sickness to raising the dead. And in that escalation, we see how far Jesus' power extends. To how, how far His power to help us in this life extends. On one end of the spectrum, we know Jesus can do the improbable. Improbably, He heals this bleeding woman. Verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. This woman is desperate. 12 years she's been suffering from menstrual bleeding. This would have made her physically weak. She probably had anemia. But just as crushing, the bleeding would have meant that she was, was considered ceremonially unclean. Which is a much bigger deal than you might realize. Remember, we're on the western side of the Sea of Galilee where all the Jews are settled. So this issue of ritual cleanliness is a big piece of their life. She can't go to synagogue. She, she would have been marginalized religiously, socially, all these different ways. Not only that, she's taken everything that she has and she's spent it on these doctors who have not been able to help her. So she's an outcast. She's sick. She's broke. She's desperate and needy. And she creeps through this crowd and falls at the feet of Christ. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Listen to how Jesus' power is described. This woman reaches out her hand and her fingertips brush against the fabric of his clothes and her bleeding stops. Instant healing. Twelve years of suffering over. All these doctor's appointments done with. Social status restored. His power to heal is that commanding. It is that efficacious. Now please understand, Jesus isn't unaware of what what is happening in this scenario, which is sort of how it seems when you just give a a, a quick read of it. Jesus has this funny exchange with Peter where he says, "Um, who's touched me? And Peter's like, I mean, the crowd's pressing in on you, Lord. Who isn't touching you? Everybody's touching you. You're being touched by everyone right now. What do you mean? Until Jesus clarifies, no, someone specifically touched me. I know it because I felt my power leave me. And don't get this wrong. He's not asking the question in the first place in order to gather some information for himself that he doesn't already know. He's asking to draw this woman forward that she might declare her actions and talk about her healing. And Jesus isn't unaware of her situation or what just took place. It's not as if Jesus is walking around with this force field of power crackling around him and just getting close to him. You might catch a jolt that would provide some sort of powerful healing. The bleeding woman didn't just randomly catch a a shock of power from Jesus. All the commentators are so quick to point this out. Just being close to Jesus 
Mere proximity to Jesus did not bring about this miracle. All kinds of people were pressing in on him. People were touching him, rubbing up against him. But Jesus is always in control. He perceives her faith and he heals her on the spot. And this was an improbable thing to do. Improbably, I mean, who would have, who would have thought this was possible? I imagine from this woman's perspective, she, she's gone to all the doctors, nobody can help her. She probably thinks that aside from Jesus doing this, miraculously interceding, that she's just going to have to eke through life with this bleeding and all of the things attached to it. But Jesus does the improbable with ease. This lowly woman wedges in behind him. She touches the fringe of his garment. Her life is changed forever. Her health is restored Socially, ceremonially, she is restored. She's made new again. Jesus possesses that kind of power. Don't read the story and, and just as if it was, was, was just a story, as if Jesus didn't really do this. He has that kind of power. Know it. Meditate on that. Pray, pray about, praise God that Jesus has that kind of power. And know that you can trust Him because His power is sufficient. So the sufficiency of Jesus' power is evidenced by him achieving the improbable, but on the other end of the spectrum, we see that Jesus is also able to do the impossible. Jesus can do the impossible. Look at verse 41. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had had an only daughter about 12 years of age. She was dying. Verse 41 introduces us to this guy named Jairus. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue, which meant he would have, um, part of his job was to arrange and take care of all of the logistical things related to their worship gatherings. It also means that this position in the synagogue would would have given him status in the community. He was a bit of a big shot in the Jewish community. But though Jairus is respected, he's in this position, he's initially desperate like the woman. You see, for those 12 years that this woman is suffering with this illness, Jairus is nurturing and raising his precious little girl. And she would have been nearing this point of betrothal and marriage. I know it seems weirdly young for us, but in the culture, it was a special time. It's an exciting time in her life. So within the narrative, that only serves to heighten the sense of terrible loss for Jairus that this little girl is dying. And all of that compels Jairus to go to Jesus, to fall down before him, and to plead with him to heal. But soon enough, Jairus' desperation turns to mourning. You see, on Jesus' way to go with Jairus, the crowd presses in, this whole deal with the bleeding woman takes place, and in the meantime, the bad news comes. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So Jairus' fears have been realized. His daughter is gone. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Jesus does this interesting thing. He clears out the house. He says, Peter, James, John, Jairus, uh, girl's mother, come with me. He brings him in. But then he says some outlandish things. Do not fear, only believe and she will be well. 
Well, she's dead, Jesus. She's not going to be well. It's too late for that. He says, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. What do you mean she's sleeping? We're not dumb. We know the difference between someone who's sleeping and someone who's dead. She's not breathing anymore. She's dead, Jesus. So we are going to weep. And then his people are laughing at Jesus for saying these things. In front of those five people in that room, he takes the dead girl's hand, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. Can you believe that? Can you believe the power with a touch and with a word? Jesus brings this girl from death to life, from cold and dead and lifeless to popping out of bed and eating. What power he has. He's done the impossible. And if Jesus uh, allowed this little girl to remain dead, he would have been just as good. But he has the power and he was merciful in that moment and he raises her to life. And imagine what that moment was like for Jairus and his wife. Imagine the unspeakable grief of losing a child only to be surpassed by the unbounding joy of getting her back. Our little girl, she was dead. She was gone. She was lost. Jesus, you brought her back to us. You saved her. You resurrected her. Thank you, Lord. Imagine what that moment was like for Peter, James, John, these men who have left everything to follow Jesus. These men who are going to be called out to be Christ's ambassadors in this world. Who are going to have to live hard lives and suffer through hard ministries. These men who in the moment were walking, traveling around the Galilean countryside with Jesus, trying to figure out who He really is and what it actually means to follow Him. And now they've just seen Jesus calm a raging storm at sea. They've seen a legion of demons shudder before Jesus. They've seen Jesus heal this woman, restore her in a touch. They've seen Jesus bring this little girl back to life. In that moment, do you think Jairus, his wife, their family, Peter, James, and John are having any trouble answering the question, can I trust Jesus? They've witnessed this power. And the only appropriate response is amazement and faith. Trust. And as we sit here today and we wrestle with that question, can I trust Jesus? We don't have a sick woman healed before our eyes. We don't have a little girl raised from the dead before us. But we have God's Word. His living Word which testifies to these real historical events and talks about the power of Jesus Christ. We also have a far more formidable display of Jesus' power Over life, death, Satan, and sin. If you want to know it, you just have to hear the Gospel. If you want to see it, you only have to look at the cross and the empty tomb. Because these miracles of healing a sick woman and raising a dead girl are like ripples before a wave. They are like shocks before an earthquake. Because Jesus' power is most mightily evidenced as He, the Holy Son of God, goes to the cross having just lived the perfect life that none of us could live, goes to the cross, endures the penalty for us, is raised again so that those who might place faith in Him by grace as Lord, that relationship, our sins broken with God, is now reconciled and restored and we can enjoy God forever. Jesus also has the power to do that. I don't know the intimate details of your life. 
And as I've been preparing and praying this week, the Lord has made me very aware of this. I'm not preaching to empty pews or generic people, you're real people. There are souls in front of me right now. Souls that God loves and cares about. I don't know the intimate details of your life. I cannot fathom all the heartbreak, all the hurt, the struggle, the doubt, the practical needs, the spiritual questions represented in this room. But I do know this. God's Word has just told us that Jesus Christ possesses all the power you will ever need to persevere in this life. His power is sufficient. Which means there is nothing that you are going through that He cannot handle. Now as we've been careful to mention all throughout our uh, series in Luke, just because Jesus has the power doesn't mean He's going to answer in the way that we want. We don't preach a prosperity gospel here. Which distorts the true gospel saying you're going to get everything you want here and now without any waiting. That's not the case. But He has the power to rescue you here and now if that be His will. More importantly, Jesus has done everything necessary to save you for eternity. So ask yourself, if Jesus can heal this woman so easily, if He could raise this little girl from the dead, if he, could, if he could conquer sin and death for the sake of His people, can I trust Him with the details of my earthly life? And can I trust Him with eternity? There is nothing you're facing that Jesus cannot overcome, including your own sin. And we need that reminder. We slip into these spiritual funks at times where we forget who He is. And we forget about His saving power. And we, we don't think that He actually hears or cares. And that is not true. His power is sufficient so we can trust Him. And while the healing of this woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter show us that we can trust Jesus because His power is sufficient, the text also communicates that we can trust Jesus because His timing is perfect. We can trust Jesus because His timing is perfect. Dr. Douglas Stewart points out that this text teaches us a few things about God's timing. First, he's able to respond instantly. Isn't that the case with the bleeding woman? She's suffering for 12 years. Uh, nobody can help her. She can't, she's not being healed at all. And then the moment she reaches out and touches Jesus in faith, she's healed. She's better. Verse 44 says, Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And when she, Verse 47 says uh, that she declares how she had been immediately healed. Two times the word immediately is used to describe this healing. By way of encouragement, that should, that should strengthen you. Be strengthened to know that Jesus is able to respond to you in a second. Like the bleeding woman, some of you are sitting here today and you are desperate in some way. Others of you, there may not be some overwhelming, overbearing desperation that's weighing down on you, but there are pressing things in your life that you are laying before the Lord. He is able to bring restoration in a moment. This week, as I looked at my wife wincing in pain in bed, um, I was so filled up with anxiety. I got so anxious. And um, I was worrying for her. I was worrying for my boys. I was worried for our family. I was worried about the future, what things were going to look like for us. Just consumed with worry. So I went to this quiet spot in our apartment and I started praying. And I confessed that worry, that anxiety. The sin of that. I confessed it to God. I opened up my Bible 
And God reminded me who he was. I looked at some of the promises of the Lord. And I asked him to give me peace. And I'm telling you, that exact second, a waterfall of peace poured over me. And I wasn't anxious anymore. Circumstances had not changed. But I was no longer debilitated with this worry. I could never have manufactured that. I could never have thought hard enough or worked hard enough to make myself stop worrying. It was a miracle of God performed in a second. Don't doubt that He's able to meet your need just as quickly. Jesus is able to respond instantly. And while that is so true, while we see it in the text, the text also tells us that He's able, but He may take His time. Jesus may also take His time. And that's Jairus' story, isn't it? He had to learn that firsthand. And for Jairus, it all began with this interruption. Remember, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet. He pleads for help. Verse 42 says, as Jesus went. And we can assume that he's going with Jairus for the purpose of helping healing this little girl. So things are looking good. Mission's underway. When that mission is interrupted, all of a sudden the crowd presses in. Here comes the bleeding woman. And she totally redirects Jesus' attention. Now, does that seem fair to you? That interruption meant waiting for Jairus. One thing Luke does not mention that I'm so curious about is uh, what was going on in Jairus' mind? What was going on internally that whole time that Jesus is talking to this bleeding woman? And I'm so curious because I know myself and I get so antsy waiting for anything. Uh, I'm blessed to have a wife who's a social butterfly and she tends to keep us lingering long at places. I don't say that negatively. I love her. Um, And I end up waiting for things a lot. And even if we have to go somewhere and we're waiting and it's a trivial sort of thing I'm waiting to go do, I get so antsy. It drives her nuts. I get so antsy. Can you imagine being Jairus here? Every minute that passes, you're wondering if that would be the minute that his daughter passes away. Is she going to hang on one more minute as I wait? He's wondering if that would be the minute that she is beyond saving. As this bleeding woman is taking up these precious moments of Jesus' time, I imagine that Jairus is dying inside. Just waiting for Jesus to escape the grip of that crowd so he can finally turn his attention to heal his daughter. And as it turns out, Jesus doesn't meet Jairus' need instantly. Rather, Jairus is caught in this place of waiting, not knowing when or if Jesus is actually going to intervene. So the interruption means waiting for Jairus. The interruption also means that Jairus' daughter dies in the meantime. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. Don't trouble Jesus any longer. She's already gone. There's nothing he can do now. Does that seem fair to you? Jairus has done everything right. He showed faith in Jesus. He's fallen down at Jesus' feet. He's he's left the care and the the well-being of his daughter in Jesus' hands. He knows Jesus can respond in an instant. He did it for this bleeding woman, but for whatever reason, he didn't do it for his daughter. And Jairus has just been hanging out waiting the whole time, and now she's gone. No doubt the waiting. The waiting was excruciating for Jairus. And this is where we struggle too, isn't it? Waiting on the Lord. 
It is hard for us. We struggle with waiting on God. Knowing that He can speak a word and answer in an instant and not knowing why He's not doing it then and why He's not jumping to action right when we want Him to. We have a hard time waiting. I know it. I struggle with it. While well, I shared that the, the, the one time this week when uh, God answered a prayer right there and, and the, the, this anxiety and the, and the stress just left me, I've been praying every day for two years that God would exercise His infinite power for the purpose of healing my wife. And here we are two years later, still waiting. He could have answered the first night I prayed two years ago, but two years later, He has not answered the prayer to date. He's answered. He said, wait. We have a hard time waiting. And to be honest, the waiting is what brought up that question in my heart in the first place. Just thinking, it's been two years, Lord. Where are you? Going to answer this thing? Are you going to answer anytime soon? Are you ever going to help us? And then it becomes so clear that if Jesus is able to answer in an instant, but he hasn't, and all of Scripture reveals that we are precious to him and he loves my wife and my family more than I'll ever know, if all of that's true, it just dawns on me that he must have some purpose in making us wait. There must be some purpose there. Jesus certainly had reasons for making Jairus wait. He didn't just get distracted. His timing was perfect. The delay was not unfair to Jairus. The delay was the best thing that could have ever happened to this man. Jesus goes to the little girl's bedside. He takes her hand, which is taboo. As a dead person, she's also considered unclean. There's this theme of clean, unclean going on with these two miracles. He doesn't care. He takes her hand anyways. He speaks the words, child arise, her spirit returns, she's alive again, she gets up, he says, get her some food. That's only going to further substantiate how alive she is. And then he says, by the way, don't tell anyone. It's not time for me to fully reveal myself yet. My mission is to die for my people. I don't want you going off trying to make me some earthly king here and now. But here's the point. From Jairus' perspective, the time was up. It was too late for healing. But God's timing was perfect. The little girl's death didn't mean it was too late for Jesus to act. God had a better plan that required that Jesus or that Jairus wait, which meant heartache in the meantime, heartache along the way. But because of the delay, the girl died. And because the girl died, Jesus had this platform to do a far greater miracle. Something far greater than healing a sick person. He raised the dead. And the end result, the purpose for it, the parents standing awestruck before Jesus, having learned this valuable lesson about faith. So the text makes it clear that Jesus' timing is perfect and that sometimes He allows us to wait because He has purpose in the waiting. And so I have been waiting on the Lord for two years. So is my wife praying for Him to heal her. And then I read this text and I think back on that two years and think, Lord, look at all that you've used that time for. Look what you've done in that, those two years of waiting. Because, because we're waiting, you've taught us such patience. 
More than we ever could have produced in our own strength or efforts. Because we're waiting, uh, the Lord is teaching me personally how to serve my family better on those days when Krista can't get out of bed and I just have to do more. That's good for me. Because we're waiting, He's given us deeper relationships with church family. People have come alongside us to love and encourage us. Because we are waiting, we've been on our knees in prayer with all of our hopes placed in Jesus Christ. The lesson that Jairus, uh, this bleeding woman, learned was that Jesus' timing is perfect. His power is sufficient. The call for my family is to trust Jesus. We don't know if it will ever be His will to heal my wife in this life, but we need to trust Him with that. That's God's call for us. So knowing that God could respond in an instant or that He may take His time, where does that leave you this morning? Hanging in limbo? Helpless? Hopeless? No, it leaves you in this special place where you simply have to rely on God. And that is such a good place to be. You may be waiting on the Lord in some way this morning. Whenever he decides to act, even if it is his immediate response to say, not in this life. Even if his immediate response to you is, I love you. I'm not going to save you from this X, Y, or Z. In this life, I've got purpose for it. You can know that his purposes are higher, that his power is sufficient, that his timing is perfect, and that you can still trust him. I believe that one of the outcomes of the way Jesus performed these miracles was the bolstered faith of those people that experienced them. Peter, James, John, Jairus, his fa- Jairus' family, the bleeding woman, you think they walked away from that day with greater faith in Jesus Christ? Do you think Jesus knew what he was doing when he arranged these events to go down just the way they did for the purpose of transforming these people in specific ways? Do you think Jesus is any less uh, intentional in your life? Do you think your waiting is an accident? Or is Jesus seeking to grow your faith, teaching you how trustworthy he is, teaching you that his power is sufficient and that his timing is perfect? So ask yourself, What is God teaching me while I wait? What can I learn while I wait? How can I honor Jesus and love Jesus more as I wait? And then follow the lead of the psalmist. The psalm that we read earlier in the service uh, as our scripture reading was Psalm 62. And in this psalm, Psalm 62, 5, the psalmist is speaking to his own soul. And here's what he says. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. The psalmist is telling his own soul to wait on God, reminding his own soul to hope in God. Rehearse that to yourself. Follow the psalmist's lead. Tell your own soul over and over and over again to wait on Jesus, that your hope is in Jesus and don't be discouraged. Jesus, his encounters with the bleeding woman and with Jairus' daughter. Reveal that we can trust Him because His power is sufficient and because His timing is perfect. And above all else, these episodes let us know that Jesus loves faith. He loves our faith. Jesus delights in our faith. So we know we can trust Jesus because He delights in our faith. We know that faith is important because He's 
constantly talking about it. He's continually emphasizing this idea of faith. And uh, if this sermon seems a little familiar to you, it's because it's sort of similar to a few other ones that we've preached along the way in our series in Luke. And that's, that's not because I decided to mail it in this week and just sort of rehash an old sermon. It's because we're moving chronologically through the gospel and Jesus just keeps talking about faith. Keeps bringing it up. Everything keeps going back to faith. In Luke chapter 5, he heals a paralytic and he forgives his sins, saying it was based on faith. In Luke chapter 7, you'll remember this, uh, he heals the centurion's servant and, and he brings it back to faith. He says, he marvels at him. And all of Israel have never seen faith like this. Chapter 7, verse 49, he tells the the sinful woman that her faith has saved her. Chapter 8, verse 25, the text we looked at last week. Here's Jesus in a boat with his disciples. They're out at sea. The storm comes and Jesus is concerned about their faith. He says, where is your faith? We're going to get here. Chapter 17, he's instructing his disciples, constantly molding them and shaping them to be these men who are going to go out and represent him. He says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Also in chapter 17, he heals a Samaritan leper based on faith. Chapter 18, he heals a blind beggar, says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Chapter 22, he's praying for Peter that his faith may not fail him. Jesus is continually talking about faith. He's teaching about faith. He's linking and connecting things back to faith. He's telling us how much he loves responding to faith. Jesus delights in our faith. And there is nothing magical about an expression of faith. The power in faith is because of the one in whom our faith is directed. The one who responds to our faith. The Almighty God. So, A faithful gesture is not bringing about miraculous things. God is doing it. He loves responding to our faith. But he keeps repeating it. He keeps talking about it. He keeps emphasizing it. He could have done one miracle, mentioning faith one time, and left it at that. But faith in Jesus Christ is this ongoing emphasis of Jesus' ministry and of Luke's Gospel. So we keep going back to it. Because we need to get this. He's repeating it for a purpose. It's not that Luke has ran out of material to write in his Gospel. As the Holy Spirit is inspiring this man, he's continually bringing things back to faith. Following along what Jesus was doing. And that's what he does with our text. He brings what happens in these two miracles back to faith. Back to the basic Christian tenet of faith in Jesus Christ. He wants us to be people of faith. He delights in it. He delights in responding to real true faith. uh, And our text gives us two examples of that, right? In the case of the bleeding woman, she had timid faith. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. She's not knocking people over to get to Jesus. She's sneaking up behind him. But it was faith nonetheless. Even creeping through that crowd was a big no-no for her. It was risky. She was ceremonially unclean. That was a big transgression of purity laws. By Jewish law, if she touches any of the people in the crowd, they are also unclean. So if she's sneaking through, weaving through this crowd, and and people discover her, she's in big trouble. She's taking a risk, but faith in Jesus Christ drives her to Him. 
We also see how timid she is in verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before Jesus. The verse implies that she, if she could have stayed hidden, she would have. But she eventually comes. Jesus calls her out. She sees that she can't stay hidden any longer. But she comes timidly, trembling before Him. But eventually, like Jairus, she ends up in the same spot at the feet of Jesus because of her faith. And Jesus responds to it. Even timid faith. He responds to it. He says, daughter. It's a term of intimacy. He doesn't say, hey you sick lady whose faith stinks. He says, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So you don't need perfect faith. You need real faith. Jesus sees and honors even these weak, timid expressions of faith, which is why He says the faith the size of a mustard seed could move a mulberry tree. God even responds to imperfect faith as long as it is genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that encourage you? You don't need to be super Christian to warrant Jesus' attention. You can come to Jesus today just as you are a needy, broken mess. But if your faith in Jesus Christ is true, if it's genuine, if you're coming to Him truly, He will turn to you. And in contrast to this woman's timid faith, we have Jairus, and his faith is bold. Verse 41, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Here's this official within Judaism who's falling at Jesus' feet. It's this gesture that just does not match up. He's a Jewish official falling at the feet of a carpenter who, as we will see, is increasingly uh, disliked, to put it mildly, by the Jewish religious leaders. So Jairus abandons all protocol related to his standing within Judaism and he falls at Jesus' feet. He rushes over. It's bold. It's passionate faith which Jesus honors by healing this man's daughter. So we have two expressions of faith. One of them is timid. One of them is bold. But they have one commonality. Both of these people really, truly trusted in Jesus. They were placing their cares, their concerns, their needs, their health, their futures in Jesus' care. Saying, it's up to you, Lord. I need you, Lord Jesus. I, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I can't see how this is going to turn out, but I trust You, Lord Jesus. My faith is in You, Lord Jesus. All my hope is in You. And Jesus loves it. The timid, the bold, it's true, genuine faith. And Jesus loves it. He delights in it. That is what Jesus wants from His people. That is what Jesus wants from us. He's calling us to be a people who are fully dependent upon Him for everything. He wants us to be a people of faith. That's why God tells the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. That's why the Apostle Paul writes things like what he writes in Galatians 2.20, which reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. This is why Jesus calls the bleeding woman forward. Doesn't let her sneak off. He doesn't want her sneaking off. He's not trying to embarrass her. He wants her to articulate her faith. He wants to hear her say it. He wants her to own it. That is important to Jesus. 
This is why Jesus says things like what he says after Jairus' daughter dies. He makes this statement that perfectly encapsulates how you and I respond to this passage. He says, do not fear, only believe. Faith in Jesus is central to our lives with Christ. So don't fear your trial. Believe in Christ. Faith is central for the unbeliever. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that along with all of us and all the rest of humanity, that your greatest trial, your most menacing enemy, is your own sin. The Bible also tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life you never could. He willingly died as your sacrifice, as your substitute. He endured the wrath of God so that you would never have to. He paid the penalty of your, uh, for your sin. Uh, and if by faith through grace you would only trust Him as Lord, you would be forgiven, washed clean, restored. You are God's forever. You will spend eternity in paradise with Him. If you've never made that decision, trusting Jesus is the first step of faith for you. So don't fear your trial. Believe in Christ. But faith is also central to the believer. And I don't need to tell you guys this. The Christian life is hard. If you're going to keep your head above water without Jesus, good luck. We will not keep our heads above water. We will not survive the Christian life if we try to live it alone. And thankfully, Jesus never intends us to live it alone. He calls us to live by faith, abiding with Him, trusting Him for everything. So don't fear your trial. Believe in Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is stirring you up this morning as you look at God's Word, here's something that you can do anytime that you want. Follow the example of Jairus. Follow the example of the bleeding woman. Submit to Jesus Christ. Submit to Him. Bow down before Him. Bow your heart and your mind before Him. Take a minute. Think about who He is. Remind yourself. Think about His Lordship and His saving power. Cry out to Him. Be honest with, about what's in your heart. That same psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 62, we read this in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge to us. Do it. Pour out your heart before Him. Trust in Him at all times. Uh, Be honest with Him about your needs and your struggles. Cast your burdens on Him and trust that He is going to care for you well. So don't fear your trial. Believe in Christ. So I'm going to ask you to think through the same question that's been on my heart all week long. Can I trust Jesus? The four miracles of chapter 8 show us Jesus has power over nature, over the supernatural, over health, sickness, life, and death. All the evidence is there to help you not to fear your trial, but to believe in Christ. The question is, will you? Will you trust Jesus? Don't fear your trial. Believe in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a weighty thing to come underneath the authority and the truth of Your Word. But I pray that we would not be passive right now. I pray that You would help us to be active responders. Holy Spirit, soften us up that we might respond to Your Word. That we might 
recognize who you truly are, Jesus, and that, it, and, and that understanding would inform the way that we live. We pray for great faith. I pray that you would give the people in this room, our church, churches all around Boston and our country and this world, give us faith, Lord. We cannot survive without you. Help us to trust you with all things. Help us not to fear our trials, but to believe in Jesus. We pray these things in the powerful name of the one who's able to raise kids from the dead and heal the sick and conquer death. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.